Hello there, my fellow warriors. If you listened to the last podcast episode, then you know that I read from my book, Still Standing, How I Overcame Guilt, Shame, Hopelessness, Devastating Loss, and Paralyzing Fear. I just wanted to read some of the first sections of this book so you can hear it from me. You can hear in my words some of my challenges and some of what I overcame to give you hope, to help you realize that no matter what you've gone through, you too can overcome. As I said in the last episode, I didn't share all the gory details. Trust me, there are a lot more gory details I could have shared with you, but I didn't feel like I needed a whole book full of all of my Jerry Springer episode in order for you to get it, for you to understand that I've been through a lot. And some of it was circumstances that was out of my control as a child. Uh, some of it was life whacking me over the head with a two by four, like in the case of my daughter Jamie's addiction. And some of it, my own choices. Isn't that the way life is? It's a mixed bag. So let me get going again here. I'm going to pick up here on page 30. And I just got through in the last episode, talking about the fact that I was divorced when my kids were one and three and I was 27. Now we move on to single motherhood. The three of us set about creating our new life together. I did feel lonely at times, but for the most part, I loved my single mom years. I worked very hard and was able to provide a safe, happy home for Jamie and Sean. My mom and Chips were terrific grandparents and we spent a great deal of time together and with extended family. Shortly after my divorce, I started as an accountant for a public company without a degree or much experience. After only a few months, the controller was let go and I accepted the controller position. I was excited for the opportunity and it meant a pay raise, but that night as I sat looking at the Securities and Exchange Commission manuals I brought home with me, I wondered what in the heck I was doing. Very quickly, I taught myself how to keep the accounting records to the strict SEC standards file the required public company forms, and oversee an annual audit. Because of that experience, one of the major accounting firms recommended me for another position with a new company that was going to be taken public. With a staff of three and a securities attorney, we did just that. It was an incredible experience that no college degree could have prepared me to go through. After the company went public, we started to build our staff and decided to implement a psychological testing policy for new employees. The psychologist agreed to administer the test for me gratis and to go over it in detail. I was impressed. The test nailed even the most complex parts of my personality. As the psychologist explained specific results, I would recall particular questions from the test that would have led to those conclusions. When the psychologist came to one area on the graph, he made a statement I will never forget. You think people are a lot more honest than they are. My mind was racing, recalling questions that may have led to the conclusion. One particular question popped into my head. A scenario was presented in which a person could gain access to a large sum of money with a guarantee that nobody would ever find out. The question went something like this. Would most people do it? To my logical brain, most people translated to 51%. I was sure most people would not take the money. I explained my logic to him. It can't be true. Most people would not take the money. He told me I was wrong. He said most people would indeed take the money and reiterated that people were not as honest as I had believed. 
When I learned that there was no Santa Claus, I knew in an instant that if Santa was fiction, then so were the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. Not a good day for an eight-year-old girl. The day with the psychologist was much worse. Jamie had the same experience when she was eight. She spent the first couple of hours of Easter morning enjoying her Easter basket when suddenly she looked up at me and said, I saw you in my room last night. She appeared to be fast asleep as I placed the Easter basket next to her bed. I had no idea she was lying in the dark with one eye open. Once Jamie had seen the elusive Easter Bunny, she demanded the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so I had no choice but to come clean about all of the lies I had told in the name of childhood fun. When her grandparents arrived later that afternoon and I told them what Jamie had learned, she denied the whole thing and stomped off with her basket in hand, not wanting to believe what she knew to be true. I don't know if the psychologist's statement is true or if there's any way to know for sure. What I did know is that I didn't want to accept that I was living in a world where most people are dishonest. I wanted to grab my Easter basket and stomp out of his office. During a routine physical, my doctor discovered what turned out to be a tumor on my thyroid gland. My first biopsy was in my doctor's office performed by a specialist. I was feeling a bit nervous while this stranger numbed my neck, but when she came at me with a needle that looked to be about a foot long, I nearly passed out. She was having trouble isolating the tumor as it was moving while she tried to take the samples. That meant repeated punctures with that long needle, which seemed to grow with every jab. I was becoming nauseated, so the doctor stopped and told me I'd need to schedule a needle-assisted biopsy at the hospital. What she was able to remove was mainly liquid, so my doctor assumed assured me it was likely nothing more than a cyst. At the hospital, I laid in a room waiting for the next doctor to come at my throat with another foot-long needle. As promised, the procedure was much more comfortable than the previous neck-stabbing session. However, this doctor must have skipped his bedside manner class. When he finished, he said, I can tell you one thing, that is not a cyst. It's a hard lump. With concern in my voice, I asked, what does that mean? It means you need to go back to your doctor right away. With that, he turned and walked out of the room, leaving a 29-year-old single mother lying there terrified. I got dressed and drove straight to my mom's office. In the 45 minutes it had taken me to get dressed, make my way out of the hospital, and to my mom's office, I convinced myself that I was dying. We didn't have Dr. Google back then, but I didn't need search results to convince myself of a cancer diagnosis. I headed straight to the worst-case scenario on my own. I had visions of my kids growing up without me and with a father who was not reliable. They needed me. Maybe I could last another four or five years, and I would teach them everything I possibly could in the time I had left. I would record cassette tapes for after I was gone, giving them advice and reminding them how much I loved them. I held back the tears and decided to be brave. The moment I saw my mom, I burst into tears. So much for brave. I called my doctor and said, whimpering, you said it was a cyst. When my doctor heard about the lack of bedside manner from the doctor performing the biopsy, he arranged for my next biopsy with a different doctor, and I would have a pathologist present to give me immediate results, something they rarely did in those days. All samples were benign. It looked as if I could put away my cassette recorder. My doctor was pushing hard for me to have the tumor removed in case a portion of the nodule not biopsied contained cancer cells. Also, it was a hot nodule, meaning it was causing my thyroid to be overactive, so it couldn't stay in there forever. I asked him what the odds were that it was benign, and he said 85%, and I told him I'd head to Vegas with those odds. He kept pressing, but I told him, nobody's cutting into my throat. 
I wasn't particularly vain, but I didn't want a scar on my neck. The doctor claimed the surgeon could place the incision where there was already a line in my neck. Hello, I was 29. There were no lines on my neck. His rebuttal was that I could wear turtlenecks. I lived in the Seattle area, so that was a viable option for most of the year. But I feel like I'm suffocating when I wear a turtleneck, so that was not happening. Finally, I told him, I'm leaving that thing in there until it becomes a grapefruit hanging off my neck. It didn't become a grapefruit, but before long, I did have to do something about it when my tumor became so overactive that my heart was racing and hands were shaking. I found myself in a lead room drinking radioactive iodine from a lead container. The goal was for the radioactive material attached to iodine to be taken up into the thyroid gland and destroy the tumor, but leave parts of my gland intact and functioning. I was crossing my fingers at work since the thyroid is a vital hormone gland that plays a significant role in metabolism, heart and digestive function, muscle control, brain development, mood, and bone maintenance, and I did not want to spend the rest of my life dependent on pharmaceuticals. All was well until a couple of years after that when I was extremely sluggish and gained 10 pounds while working out daily. Thus began my dependence on thyroid replacement medication and the eventual issues that come from the thyroid not functioning naturally. I had a sneaking suspicion that I was not my dad's favorite child, but one Christmas shortly after I was married, it became apparent. Brad was 19 and still lived at my dad's, and it was always the rule that he could open just one of his many gifts on Christmas Eve, while Daryl and I opened ours. Brad tore into his first gift of the holiday, a leather jacket. Daryl started ripping through his wheels for his car, a fishing reel and rod, and more. There was one lone gift under the tree for my husband and me. It was a cheap plastic meat slicer. Grandpa had gotten my da dad a job at the meatpacking plant in sales, so the slicer was probably something he had received for free. What in the heck were we supposed to do with a meat slicer? We sat there looking at each other, trying not to burst out laughing. It wasn't about the gift or the monetary value of it, but the realization that my dad had so overtly played favorites. I was clearly at the bottom of his favorite kid list. Years later, my half-brother Donnie would tell me that he always assumed his name was below our dad's dog. Each June, I made the dreaded trip to the card shop to search for an appropriate Father's Day card for my dad. I agonized because there appeared to be two types of greeting cards. Some had messages to the tune of, to the best dad. Others said, for a fine man on Father's Day, or something to that effect. The first wasn't true, and the second sounded like something one would give to the mailman. I never knew what to buy my dad for a gift either, since we didn't know each other very well. He never acknowledged my kids' birthdays, and he was somewhat of a stranger to them. He didn't even know about my thyroid tumor. One time he announced that Daryl and I were not in his will. He would take care of Brad, and my mom should take care of Daryl and me. Now, I don't expect to be in anybody's will, but that was another nail in the father-daughter coffin. No sooner would the stress of Father's Day be over when his birthday would roll around than the holidays. My little family would show up at his place on Christmas Eve and go through the motions of pretending we were family. It was uncomfortable for me as I only wanted real relationships in my life. And this was not one of them. The cycle continued until I decided to get off the roller coaster. I wrote him an honest letter letting him out of his obligation of being my dad. It must have been a relief for him since I never heard a word back. It should have hurt my feelings that he could let his only daughter go so easily, but the truth was he had let me go years before. Nana was born with club feet, a condition where the feet are rotated inwardly toward the ankles. 
My great-grandmother Fanny May was a nurse and rode horseback. I have an image in my mind of great-grandma riding a horse through the prairies of central Canada, her long red hair blowing in the wind. I'm sure her single mom life after her husband died was far less glamorous than that, but I love the visual. Nana would recall arriving at home from school to find a patient sprawled out on the kitchen table, her mother standing over them knife in hand. Fannie Mae was a brave and strong woman who knew how to take matters into her own hands, so she would massage my Nana's feet several times a day until they began to straighten out, at which point Nana wore steel braces until she was 12 years old. Nana's life began with health issues. She had exceptionally thin, delicate skin, was born with a couple of extra ribs, and spent her life with bronchial problems. She was a smoker in her younger years, but quit back in 1964 when the Surgeon General announced that smoking was harmful. Years later, she was diagnosed with emphysema. Nana was on oxygen for many years, lugging around a small tank wherever she went, but she never complained, not once. Nana was a big Seattle Supersonics basketball fan and watched the NBA games religiously. Nobody in my family was a basketball fan, including Grandpa, so she would sit by herself and cheer for the Sonics or even yell at the opposing team. No swear words, though. That wasn't Nana. I must have gotten that gene from somebody else. She was an artist who could have easily sold her beautiful paintings. It impressed me that Nana could take an image in her mind and put it on paper or canvas. I can only draw stick people, really bad ones. Nana recovered furniture and was an amazing seamstress. She made clothes for me when I was little and even into junior high when she made me the coolest faux suede jacket with faux fur sleeves. Hey, it was the 70s. Nana showed me how she used the resistance of only her muscles to build strength and exercised right up to the last trip she made to the hospital. Nana cooked with herbs and made delicious meals without salt. She never let her hair go gray and was always put together. She was a quiet, five-foot-tall redhead with the softest lips I have ever felt. Nana's heart finally failed as a result of her emphysema. She died while I was going through my divorce. Shortly after, I got chickenpox. I had them as a kid, but getting them as an adult was unbelievable. There must have been thousands of blisters all over my body and in every orifice. I counted at least 50 in my mouth and had them down my throat. My organs ached and I had to take Novocaine so I could swallow. That was a low point in my life, but remembering Nana's courage helped me through. She refused to be a victim, no matter how much she suffered. Nana had a positive outlook up to the moment she died. She was not one that most people would consider a hero. Nana never went out and changed the world, but she changed mine, and she was my hero. Grandpa died a few years later. He had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease about six years before. It was sad to watch my grandpa, who had always had a big belly and quick wit, wither away and lose his happiness. My parents cared for him for most of those years, but toward the end, he was in a nursing home a short distance from my house. I visited Grandpa a great deal, but often he didn't even know who I was. Still, I would go and often brought homemade cookies for the staff, treating them the way I hoped they were treating my Grandpa. He was declining rapidly, having trouble swallowing, and he no longer communicated with or recognized us. Grandpa got pneumonia, and the doctor explained what his quality of life would be like if he recovered so we chose not to treat it in favor of allowing the incredible hospice workers to manage his care until his body had enough. I saw Grandpa each of the 10 days he laid there on morphine with the rattling in his chest becoming louder and louder. 
I wanted to be with him when his soul left his body and was waiting for the call, day or night. Unfortunately, I got the call that he died. I rushed over and spent a few minutes with the man I loved and appreciated more than words can express. Grandpa was Scottish and had a great sense of humor. He used to say that one day he would shuffle off to Panama. I smiled through the tears as I removed the family photos and drawings his great-grandchildren had given him from the bulletin board above his bed. I boxed up the very few possessions he had left, gave my grandpa one last kiss goodbye, and thought to myself, enjoy Panama, grandpa. One of the most challenging things I have ever done was to deliver my grandpa's eulogy, but someone who loved him as much as I did had to speak for the family. My brother Daryl showed up at my house the day before the service. It was December, but he was wearing sunglasses. He handed me a piece of paper and said, this is what I would say if I could. As he turned to leave, I saw the tears dripping onto his cheeks from under the sunglasses. I gave it my all that day, speaking on, on behalf of my brothers and the rest of the family, not knowing how important those few minutes of bravery would be to my future mission. My kids were my everything, and our lives were going well. Jamie and Sean were safe and protected. I set about keeping things in order and doing everything I could to make their lives happy and peaceful. They attended Montessori school for the first few years of, years of their schooling. We read books, watched movies, did homework together, baked cookies, played games, went rollerblading, bike riding, hiking, and went on a few fun vacations. Sure, I made parenting mistakes and would do some things differently if given a chance, but all in all, I was a good mom. My supermom Kate was even in good shape since I hadn't needed to use it much. I learned to be fearful of even low heights at a young age. Standing at the edge of a cliff or next to a window in a skyscraper made me physically ill. I didn't like being unreasonably scared of heights, so I decided to do something about it. My friend was helping me with this mission, and while in Phoenix, at the tail end of a business trip, we went on an early morning hot air balloon ride. Next, we headed to Scottsdale for a ride in a private plane that took us to the Grand Canyon. He also secured a helicopter ride into the Grand Canyon upon our arrival. But it was so windy that day that by the time we arrived, with me sicker than a dog, all flights were canceled. I didn't let that setback stop me, though. When I returned home, I went on another hot air balloon ride, this one taking me up much higher than the first one. Next, I went hiking to the top of Mount Pilchuck and stood out on a rock outside of the lookout building. I had been up that same mountain before, but that time, it was quite a different story. At the 5,327-foot summit of the mountain, there's a small lookout tower, which is a tiny building cabled to large boulders. In the past, it was a fire lookout, but now it's a fantastic opportunity for a 360-degree view of central Washington and the Puget Sound area. The lookout building has this decking all around it, but to get there, you first have to climb up a short ladder. The first time I was there, I got to the landing at the top of the ladder and immediately climbed right back down to solid ground. This time, I climbed right up the ladder and walked around the outside deck of the tiny lookout building. I stepped through a break in the railing and walked across a plank that led to a huge boulder. I stood with my arms in the air on top of the world and unafraid. I wanted to hike Mount Rainier, but my mom convinced my kids I was going to fall into a crevasse and die, so they begged me not to do it. It is amazing how much fear drives our decisions, and I didn't want my kids to be fearful which is one reason I tried to be brave. 
but I didn't want them to worry that their mom was going to die on Mount Rainier. While I would have preferred to be married, my single mom years were good. I swore I would stay single forever rather than to, than to be in an unhealthy marriage. With no college degree, I had to work my tail off to climb the business ladder and earn enough to allow Jamie and Sean to be safe and enjoy some life experiences. But I would live with the guilt of being a single mother on and off for years. When my daughter went off the rails a few years later, I would flat out blame myself. Until then, my life was full of possibilities. My confidence was high and I was feeling brave. I believed amazing things were in my future. A man named Rich. I dated a couple of guys during my single mom days, but it was tough trying to balance a romantic relationship with protecting the best interests of my children. In early 1997, I was working as director of operations for a small company in startup mode. We had recently hired three new people for a particular project that was more of a test project. I was leaving the office one evening when one of the new employees, Terry, asked me if I would like to meet a friend of her fiance, Randy. She went on to tell me all the wonderful qualities this guy, Rich, possessed, and then proceeded to explain he was going through a divorce. I placed the appointment book I was holding onto her desk and made the cross symbol with my two index fingers. No thanks. I've been single for eight years. I don't need to deal with that, I said. She was persistent and argued that worst case, I could meet a new friend. So I reluctantly agreed. I learned later that Rich had a similar reaction when he heard my first name, which was the same as his soon-to-be ex-wife, and my last name, which was eerily similar to her maiden name. We met on neutral ground, joining Randy and Terry at the Bellevue Club, which both Rich and I were members. We enjoyed sushi and lively conversation, and we were having a good time, when suddenly I looked at my watch and let out a small gasp. It was nearly 10 p.m., my children were at my friend Maria's house, and our kids were best friends, so Jamie and Sean couldn't have cared less about going home, but it was a school night. I ran out of the club and down the stairs like Cinderella, leaving the ball. We would realize early on just how different perspectives can be when I teased Rich, saying, you never even walked me to my car, to which he replied, I didn't have a chance. You just got up and ran out the door. Such was the life of a single mother. The next morning, the president called a couple of us into his office to inform us the test project was a bust and we were going to let the employees go. I had the unfortunate duty of delivering the news to Terry. I felt badly since she had only been employed for three weeks and had done nothing wrong. Terry's response was unexpected. She said it was okay with her because she believed the reason she found the job was so that Rich and I could meet. I wasn't so sure I was meant to meet Rich since he was still going through a divorce. Over the next week or so, Rich called me at my office to invite me to lunch three times. The first two times I had eaten early that day, something I rarely did. The third time I didn't call him back because I took Sean to the doctor that afternoon and then to have dinner with my parents. We had cell phones, but they were not attached to our bodies like they are these days. Rich informed his friend that he was done trying to ask me out. The next morning I retrieved his message and we made another plan. I got over the fact that he was going through a divorce and in fact helped him through it. He realized dating a single mother wasn't so bad. A year after we met, we were married. Jamie was 12 and Sean was 10. We moved to Rich's beautiful home in the Lakemont area of East Bellevue across Lake Washington from Seattle. Life was going in the right direction. I didn't need Rich for parenting. I had that one down. Remember, I had a super mom cape. He was more for me, but it was nice to feel as if my family would finally be complete. Life was pretty good before I married Rich, but the new chapter promised to be amazing, just like I imagined. Rich and Jamie clashed early on. He wasn't taking her newfound attitude, and she didn't want to be bossed around. 
I should have purchased a referee shirt and whistle since I seemed to be in the middle of their confrontations. There were some growing pains for all of us. My kids suddenly had a stepfather and Rich had had no children of his own. He wasn't used to lights left on or socks on the floor. Jamie and Sean were not used to having another adult to answer to, one they didn't know all that well. The kids had the bottom floor of the house to themselves most of the time, with three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a huge family room with a pool table. So socks on the floor on occasion, or a light left on downstairs, should not have been a big deal, but they were for Rich. One time he asked me, how many times do I have to tell them to turn off the lights? I grabbed my imaginary parenting manual and replied, I don't know, let me look. I turned the imaginary pages and moved my finger down the non-existent page and stopped in midair exclaiming, let's see, lights, here we go, 5,362. Rich became good friends with my brothers and all of my family loved him right away. So he settled in well with the extended family, but the four of us struggled to create a family unit. I felt pulled between the man I was planning to spend the rest of my life with and the children I had already spent all of their lives with. Pre-Rich, Sean brought home a little library book, which would be the basis for his first book report. It was about Jerry Rice, the San Francisco 49er football player. He announced that he was a San Francisco 49er fan, although he lived in Seattle Seahawk land. No amount of poking or prodding deterred Sean. He was a Niner for life. Rich comes from the San Francisco Bay Area, and he's a longtime San Francisco 49er fan, so he and Sean had that instant bond. The San Francisco 49ers would wind up being the glue that held Sean and Rich's relationship together through the first years of our married life. It was eight years since I sent the fateful letter to my dad. Sean, who was around 11 or 12, was home sick. I had a feeling he wasn't sick, but my usual tactic had not worked. When he would say he was too ill to go to school, I would let him know he could stay home, but that meant no television, video games, or toys. He would need to stay in bed and sleep or read. It usually turned into what I call an MR, a miraculous recovery, and off to school he would go, but no MR that day, which would turn out to be a blessing. I received a call from my brother Brad telling me our dad had suffered a heart attack and was in the hospital. I hung up the phone and cried. Then I tried to figure out what to do. It was an awkward situation not knowing what kind of response I would get if I showed up at the hospital or if one of his 12 siblings might throw me out the door. I prayed and asked God not to go with me to the hospital, but to take me there. I was sure glad Sean didn't have an MR that day because I was grateful he was going with me and God to the hospital. I was relieved to find the waiting area empty and we were escorted immediately into the ICU. We hesitantly approached his bed and I looked down at the stranger who was my dad. I had never seen him with gray in his otherwise jet black hair. The lines on his face showed he had aged in the past eight years. He awoke and it took him a moment to realize it was me, but when he did, he stretched his arms out toward me and called my name. We had a tearful embrace and all was forgotten. From there, we began a different relationship, one that would eventually center on Sean's football games. My dad would sit in the stands with Rich and I, Sean's dad and other family or friends, enjoying the food I brought and cheering as loud as anyone. My dad was at every one of Sean's football games, home and away, through junior high and high school, until one day he dropped out of our lives without a word. Jamie was gifted. She was proficient at everything she tried. This girl was smart, funny, outgoing, artistic, and brave. She had a quick wit and was a natural leader. As Sean says, she lit up a room. I used to quip that she would be the first woman president. 
Jamie was a natural athlete and played basketball and soccer, but her favorite sport was softball, which she started playing at the age of nine. The teams were full and the season was about to begin. Luckily, there were a few new players, so a brand new team was thrown together. We secretly referred to them as the Bad News Bears because, well, they were terrible. Most of the girls had never played past t-ball, and it pained me to watch the first few practices, resigning myself to the fact that this would be a very long season. Jamie played first base, and her coaches soon began to refer to her as the vacuum, since she scooped up or caught nearly every ball that came her way. The girls came together and started to be pretty good. By the end of the season, the Bad News Bears, formerly known as the Rockies, were in the playoffs. It was indeed a long season after all. The team they were up against was full of experienced players, as experienced as you can be at 9 or 10 years old. Their pitcher's dad was a semi-pro player who had taught his daughter throwing some ungodly number of pitches each day. Our pitcher was new to the game. Nonetheless, the Rockies won the championship. Jamie went on to play select softball and to play for her high school team. During her select softball days, we would spend entire weekends at the ball field for tournaments. It was a sacrifice for all of us, mostly Sean, but I loved almost every minute of those weekends. Both Jamie and Sean played several sports and participated in many extracurricular activities. I was at sports practices, games, karate classes, volunteered on the playground and in the lunchroom during Sean's lunchtime. I volunteered at Jamie's middle school to be the choir robe mom. I don't think that was the official title, but then there probably wasn't one. It was a big commitment since there were a gazillion robes and part of the job was to do some mending. And unlike my Nana, I can barely sew on a button. My kids were used to a parent who made quick decisions. One Sunday I was out, so Sean asked Rich if he could go to the movies on Friday. Expecting an immediate answer, Rich told Sean he needed to think about it. So Sean checked in a couple of hours later, but Rich said he was still thinking about it. On Thursday, Sean was getting anxious and tried to get me to intervene, but they needed to figure out their roles in the new relationship, so I told him to be patient. When Friday morning rolled around and Rich was still thinking about it, I told Rich he had tortured Sean long enough, but he made Sean wait until right before his friend's dad was leaving for the movies to grant permission. From there on out, both kids avoided asking Rich for permission if they could ask me. All torturing and socks on the floor aside, we were working our way through the relationship challenges without anybody losing a limb or heading to divorce court. Fear of public speaking ranks at the top of the list of fears in many surveys and articles. Really? More than death? Or spiders? Or birds? The first time I did a formal presentation in front of a group of people was in high school oral communications class, and I was scared half to death, even though I knew everyone in the room. It didn't help that I had chosen spina bifida as my topic. I was in child psychology class at the time and was reading about children born with this condition, and it moved and interested me although I doubt the rest of the sophomore class shared my enthusiasm. The first time I spoke in a business setting was at a meeting with around 30 people in attendance. I thought about my high school speech and my nerves were on edge. But then I remembered I had delivered grandpa's eulogy, so I knew I could do this. Before speaking, I went around the room and introduced myself to every person I could. So when I stood in front of the room, I was looking out at somewhat familiar faces. A year or so after that, I reluctantly agreed to co-emcee an event with several hundred attendees. The audience would include some very experienced and skilled speakers. I was scared, but I wanted to overcome another fear. On the morning of the event, the other MC came down with laryngitis. I was shaking when I took the stage, but I had planned to use humor, my go-to place, when asking the crowd to be mindful of cell phones and some other event business. It was going great. 
and I felt pretty comfortable after about a minute or two on the tall stage when I heard someone down below whispering loudly, the national anthem. Oh no, I thought. The first thing this company always did was play the national anthem and I had gone right into my humor bit. Somehow I had to eloquently get myself off the stage while the national anthem played and then return as if nothing out of the ordinary happened. We broke for lunch and I wasn't feeling too bad about how I had managed so far. When one of the seasoned speakers caught up with me and tapped me on the shoulder, he asked, how long have you been speaking? I looked at my watch, since about nine o'clock, I answered. He chuckled, then went on to tell me I was natural and how impressed he was, especially considering it was my first stage appearance. appearance. Had I not stepped up and faced a fear, I would never have realized a gift that can be used to help so many others. About the title of this section, A Man Named Rich. I have a sarcastic sense of humor. I'm part Scottish and Irish, so I can't help it. And one day I said to Rich, I prayed and prayed for a rich man, and God sent me a man named Rich. After he rolled his eyes and said sarcastically, ha ha, I followed it up with, when you pray, you must be very specific. I couldn't help trying it out on family and friends, and it got some pretty good laughs, so it stuck. The poor guy has heard it now about a hundred times. Recently, though, he brought it up to some new friends. So after a couple of decades, I think my sense of humor is finally catching on. My marriage was solid, and we were working to become a family, even with the bumps we had encountered. But three short years after our wedding, Jamie would make a decision that would provide our little family with four free seats on the roller coaster from hell. Thank you for listening to another podcast where I'm sharing with you my book, Still Standing, how I overcame guilt, shame, hopelessness, devastating loss, and paralyzing fear. This is part two. If you didn't read or listen to, I should say, part one, you should go back and listen to it. And please tune into the next podcast because I am going to share with you the next and last part of my story from this book that I'm going to share with you. You are always welcome to go to Amazon and get a copy of the book but I thought it was kind of a fun way to end the year here is to have you listen to some of my story from me personally. Again, my friend, I know that my story is much different than yours, but hopefully you can understand that my life has been messy and I'm only sharing a very small portion of it so that you can appreciate that your life's messy too. And that's just the way it is. It's so easy when we're on the outside looking in at somebody else's life to think it's something different or that they've had it easier than we have. And sure, some people do have it easier. But what we see when we're on the outside looking in, it's not always what it truly is. Until the next episode, know that you're not alone. Your story matters. And I am standing right there with you.